Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Barbara Rainey. Barbara has been, well, she has been around off-road a long time. We got acquainted doing the Reno Rocks event, and we will discuss that. We'll discuss being the managing partner, office manager, the Off-Road Hall of Fame, and, and Barbara's significant impact there. So, Barbara, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, where did you grow up? Well, hi, Rich, and Hello. hi, everybody. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, yes, I've been around a long time, as Dave Cole likes to say, since uh, Barbara's been around off-road since before, uh, since wheels were square. So I am a Southern California beach girl, grew up there in the 70s, and probably the thing that defines me the most is just, uh, I like wide open spaces, I want to see what's over the next horizon, Always uh, leaning in, pushing ahead, wanting to see what's next. Grew up riding horses through the hills, uh, body surfing at the beach, and uh, pretty much, you know, everybody says, wow, you must have been rich to live there. No, it was just a good time to be in Southern California in the 60s and 70s in Orange County and Laguna, San Juan area. It was just magical. And uh, I lived near Orange County Raceway. Couldn't explain why. Uh, wasn't a, from a car family. My dad drove a Corvair and was an aerospace engineer, but I just wanted to go to the races. So I showed up at Orange County Raceway one day in my teens, wound up working in the souvenir stand, and so that's how I got my start in uh, racing, was at Orange County International Raceway in the 70s. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I knew that you were you got involved in, in racing, but I didn't realize it was from the souvenir stand <laughs> well you know that's the great place to start in the marketing and then i worked into working in the timing tower and ran the telerider if you're a drag you know you work at a drag strip and the cars go down the quarter mile somebody has to write down the times and the speeds and then this fancy little old antiquated machine would uh, mimic that what i wrote up in the tower and take it down to the other end and the guys would pick up their timing slips at the other end from the booth so got to do a lot there and really got my boots on the ground education in marketing, learned from some of the greats. I worked for 
Charlie Allen and Bill Doner and uh, my friend Lynn Rose. We worked side by side at the raceway and put on events like the bug-ins and the fox hunts and the 64 funny cars and manufacturers championships and anything, anybody that grew up in Southern California in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that was the place to be and those were the events to be at. And so I got a real education on operations and marketing from my experience there. And that's where I met my husband too. So that oh, was kind of fun. Excellent. And uh, your husband is David? Right. You can't talk about uh, trail mom uh, without talking about recovery, Dave. Uh, my husband uh, was stationed at the USMC El Toro, which was right next to OCIR. And uh, actually, we met over a Jeep pickup truck, which is kind of funny. Uh, one of the companies I worked for had a pickup truck for sale, a Jeep truck in the 70s. And uh, my uh, our chief starter, uh, Smitty, Ron Smith, told David he was a... Um, Smitty was a recover, uh, gunnery sergeant at the Marine base, and then he worked over at the track. And he told David there was this girl that had a pickup for sale, and uh, flash forward 42 years, and we're still together and still at the races. So not only did he pick up the truck, but he picked up you? You know, <laughs> he didn't He didn't buy the truck, but he got the girl. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if he wonders if that was a good good decision or not. He might be wishing he had that old J-10 back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. How long were you there at the Orange County Raceway? Yeah, I was there. You know, we were there five or six years. You know, unfortunately, one of the hallmarks of any kind of racing, and it's a thread through everything we do, is uh, land use issues. And, you know, it just got too expensive to keep the track going. So the track closed in 83. We did world finals there. And, uh, before the track closed, I kind of went and looked for some other things to do, answered a blind ad in the Orange County Register, uh, and anybody remembers going to the uh, classified ads to find your jobs, and it turned out to be Stadium Motorsports, and Stadium Motorsports were the producers of Supercross, and that was Mike Goodwin, and that was in Laguna Beach, so that took me on my next journey around the country uh, putting on Supercross. And I'm still friends with my boss, John Bradley, to this day. Um, doing television back in the early 80s was kind of hysterical to try to do things. You know, character generation was just coming in. We didn't have computers. We just barely got computers. And um, uh, we had uh, all kinds of crazy ways to try to communicate and put on events across the country. And then uh, through that, I worked. I had the privilege and the honor of working for Mickey and Trudy Thompson in uh, the Grand National Sport Truck Series, Mickey Thompson's Stadium Truck Series. And we would go around the country and put on those events. One of <laughs> people today, I mean, it's just hard to even comprehend how you would put on an event. And we'd get to a city, uh, Rich, and uh, you'd get your hotel room. And in your hotel room was a list of things you needed to do. Remember, there's no computers, there's no <laughs> no cell phones, nothing. So you'd have a list. And to me, it was kind of like a scavenger hunt. Um, and you'd have a list and a roll of freaking quarters for the payphone. And you couldn't spend any money. The trick back then was, is you had this massive stadium that seated 80,000 people. Well, you knew you weren't going to sell 80,000 seats, so you'd have to go out and find what you needed, but you would trade VIP tickets. Your list might say, find cars for King Kong, the monster truck to crush. So you got to go to a junkyard and you, you know, drive around in your rental car with your roll of quarters 
and you find cars and you trade the guy at the, the car uh, salvage company some tickets. And then you have to find carpet to put the cars on in the stadium because they won't let you put the cars on their uh, concrete. So then you got to go to a carpet company and find some carpet and trade them some tickets. <laughs> and, you know, so on and on and on, and the mechanics of putting on these events um, kind of in the dark ages. But, boy, it was fun and it was an adventure. That's pretty cool. I I didn't know how how that all worked back then. And it's intriguing because putting on events now, it's a lot easier when we can just look everything up on the computer or on a cell phone and then make the calls. I mean, everybody complains about Google knowing everything, but without Google knowing everything, it would make my job a lot harder. Right. Now uh, Now the challenge to me is editing things out. You have access to anything and everything. And so how do you refine that into something that uh, is succinct and makes sense and tells your message. And then it's also a challenge for all the businesses too. You know, how do you cut through all the noise? Um, And then when you establish something, things are a moving target a lot faster now. You know, just about the time you get the hang of freaking Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook, then here comes, uh, you know, TikTok and all these other platforms. So, um, and then do you chase them or do you, you know, when is the timing right? So uh, the challenges are different, but there are people in our industry, which is the thing I love about our industry is the people, um, you know, they're certainly up to the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of us have hit or chosen this industry because of the people, the relationships, you know, the, one of the reoccurring themes in all of these podcasts that I've done so far is that everybody talks about, you know, the, the people they get to hang out with. And it is so true from our side of it, dealing with the racers, dealing with our marketing partners and advertisers and dealing with the spectators and the property owners and the manufacturers and everything. It's just absolutely a phenomenal business to be in or an industry to be in if you can create it into a lifestyle. Yes. You know, the people in off-road, and again, that's what draws me to it. You know, after I worked for Mickey and Trudy and all, and uh, we, uh, we moved to Reno, Nevada for my husband's work and we're still here. And, uh, and so I kind of, step back a little bit and we got more into recreational off-road you know we're blessed to be right here by the rubicon and the black rock desert and fordyce and i mean we can you know i can go out the back door and there's there's a wild horse eating right outside my house right now so the kind of that don't fence me in uh spirit of the west you know uh the people of off-road are i always like to say they're innovators and instigators they're aggravators and agitators you know, they're the to me, it's the spirit that settled this country and uh, won won world wars. And um, you know, sometimes the best of us is the worst of us, and, and obviously there are situations where that rears its head. But in in general, you know, these are people who are pushing forward and trying to make something happen. Um, one of my favorite stories when I took over the Hall of Fame is we have. Um, the yellow Class H Chevy of of Parnelli Jones and and Walker Evans. And that truck won everything back in the day, and they actually moved it up a class because 
they couldn't, they just couldn't believe that it, it was unbeatable. And, uh, you know, somebody sent me a, of course, usually your, your uh, dissenters send you uh, anonymous messages, you know, <laughs> you know I have a guy to tell you in person, but I had somebody send me a note and say, you know, that's a cheater truck. <laughs> and so I looked into it and researched it. And, uh, you know, you can look at it one of two ways. If it's your truck, it's innovation. You're pushing the envelope. And that's another hallmark of off-roaders. They're always pushing the freaking envelope, you know, yes. and sometimes that gets annoying. So this truck, yes, it pushed the envelope and it was an innovative truck. If it's your truck, you know, if it's beating you all the time, yeah, it's a cheater because you haven't <laughs> figured out how to, you haven't figured out how to innovate around it. And that's, you know, you look at rock crawling and um, off-road and even recreational wheeling. Every day there's somebody looking at a Jeep or, a, or a, you know, a taco or a Toyota and saying, what can I do to make this better? Ultra 4, look at Ultra 4, my goodness, you know. Just since 2007 when it was a bunch of, you know, a few home-built buggies and a few Jeeps, and and look at where it's gone in the innovation. And then that provides thousands of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs. It, it fuels our economy, you know. So all these innovations and these innovators, uh, yeah, there's some failures. And, yeah, people have fun with, you know, calling them overlanders and snorkels and light bars and whatever. But you know what? The, there are so many positives that outweigh any of the negatives. That's what I choose to look at and to applaud and to highlight. We don't need any more critics. True. You have to be one of the most positive, upbeat, and love everyone person that I know. I, well, I've some never, people like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard you talk ill about anybody in, the, in our industry. It's, uh, it always amazes me. You have so many friends and everybody really does look up to you that has ever met you and, and is amazed. But you're, you're just so kind. And having to deal with everybody that you deal with, I have to give you, like, the biggest gold star ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pin it right to my uh, straitjacket here in the sanitarium at the Off-Road Hall of Fame. No, so here's how I feel about that. And we have talked about that in the past. There is a special place in heaven for race promoters. Uh, unfortunately, uh, most of the time it looks like hell. <laughs> because until you have been in those shoes and seen what people have done, you know, anybody that's out there in the world trying to do something positive, if you're not going to get in there and help them, the least you can do is get out of the way, you know? Right. And... Maybe it's because I'm an old person now, but, you know, I've, my youthful exuberance took me to a lot of wonderful things and places and all that energy. And I also made some epic mistakes too, you know, and, uh, but you don't have the success without the failure. You know, you go back to the old baseball batting average, you know, even if you're, even if you're the, you know, the home run king, you still struck out 50% of the time. So, I look at the people who are willing to stick their neck out there to do things for us so that we can enjoy what we love to do. Like, look what Dave's going through with King of the Hammers right now, just trying to put on an event. Look at all the stuff you and Shelly do 
and did for your love of rock crawling with traveling the country for We Rock. You know, people see the podiums and they see the exciting part. They don't see you guys at the truck stops in the middle of the night or after all the spectators leave and there's 50 frickin' course flags up on that hill that need to come down and be carted down to the truck and packed up. And, you know, there are a lot of people who want the glory, but there are not many people who are willing to put in the work. And usually the people who are putting in the work aren't really doing it to seek the glory. They're doing it because of the love of what they do. And they just almost, you almost can't help yourself, you know, and I kind of look at the Hall of Fame that way. And I hope we can talk more about the Hall of Fame than about me because, uh, you know, that's far more interesting. Oh, the Hall of Fame, we'll get into the Hall of Fame deeply, but, you know, your background is substantial. The, like I said, the number of people that you know, even before you started in the Off-Road Hall of Fame was just absolutely incredible. And the impact that you've made to, to people's lives, everybody that I know that has met you would 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 say it um, that you know it, it's been ph- oh. phenomenal. So let's wow. let's continue. I didn't know this, it, this is your life, Barbara Rainey. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> no worries, but uh, it's it's all comes from the heart. It it really does. Right. Right. So, well, you kind of start looking back and you see, you know, like when I when I stopped working for uh, for the event business, I, I made a conscious decision to stay home and raise my kids. We've always been recreational off-roaders, always, since we met. And uh, my husband, we still have our 1970 CJ6. We still have our 1942 flat fender that we would take the family through the Rubicon in in the 80s. We look kind of like the Clampets going to Beverly Hills because we'd have a family of four in the fully aired flat fender on 31s, you know, with the 10 on the top and the kids in the car seats. And uh, so I've spent over 40 years, you know, on the trails, loving the American West. And uh, off-road is the way that we get out there and we're able to enjoy it. Yes, so true. And And with that... When was the first time that you ran the Rubicon? Maybe 1986. Okay. You know, that was that was a century ago, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, start, I started running that area in 83. So Yeah. Um, and I'd always heard so much about it. I thought it was life-threatening. <laughs> uh, it's actually just rig-threatening. You know, if you're not dumb... You know, my husband uh, did have to rip the door off the outhouse once back in the 80s to make a backboard for a guy whose rig had backed off a little sluice or something and gone down a hill. But, you know, um, the Rubicon is an amazing experience, but it's, again, it's the people you meet. It's being on the trail. It's that self-reliance and independence and that spirit of being able to fix it. Um, our friend Tim uh, Albaniano, we met him in there in the, I think in the late 80s, we saw Tim welding a drive shaft for a guy with two batteries in line wearing two pairs of sunglasses. <laughs> now, unless you're of a certain age, you can't appreciate the, that was like seeing the Holy Grail. <laughs> you just couldn't believe that somebody could do that. Absolutely correct. 
you know, now you just pop the hood, you got your portable welder, you put on your shield and down the road you go. But, uh, you know, there are new challenges and things that are of a different kind. They're, they're more on the side of, um, you know, loving places to death and taking, you know, what to do with human waste and, uh, overuse and those types of things because the technology now allows people to get out in greater numbers and do all the things that in the old days were pretty unheard of. Yeah, you can buy a vehicle right now for the first time as a newbie and have all the things that you know you had to build up to. You know, and, and that's one thing the manufacturers and the aftermarket has done really well is has looked at uh, at the end user, whether it's a racer or an extreme wheeler, what they've done to their vehicle to make it so capable. And now the manufacturers are doing that from the factory. Right. Well, it's kind of come down to the point that these days, in the old days, the, the strongest link was the the resourceful guy behind the wheel who had to know where to place the tires, how to maintain your vehicle, what, you know, what you could do with what you had. And now it's almost like I'm probably going to make some enemies, but I think the weakest link is the person behind the wheel almost anymore because the vehicles are so capable and, you know, they can, they can get people in more trouble and they can get people into places they shouldn't be. And, um, you know, we really need to educate people on on proper ways to do things. And I'm thinking the recreational side, um, because we don't want more places shut down. You know, that's the last thing we need. And that's been the trend for the first 50 years of this sport. Um, and so we kind of are dedicating ourselves to um, that kind of education as well. Absolutely. I think that uh, even the proliferation of UTVs has, it's been great for the off-road market, but it's also been detrimental. Without the, without the manufacturers having some kind of a program in place to teach the new enthusiasts trail etiquette and the environmental concerns that we all share, that creates chaos um, in a lot of areas. And I'm just hoping that somehow we can get manufacturers involved in, in, in looking at the, the end use of their vehicles, um, a little bit more than, than just, uh, as soon as they write, somebody writes that check that, and they get handed the keys that they're no longer, you know, under the care or guidance of the manufacturers. Correct. And, you know, with the side-by-sides, then you have all the trailers and the tow rigs. So let's say 30 of your friends are going to go on a side-by-side run. You have to have a place to park 30 trucks and trailers. I mean, so there's all kinds of, you know, blessings that and challenges that come with this new innovation. Um, the Hall of Fame, you know, we believe so strongly in this that uh, – I don't know when this is airing, but probably not before uh, – King of the Hammers next week, we're actually partnering with Fred Lightly as one of their um, partners. And then uh, we're going to give them, you know, last year, 2020, holy mackerel, was, was not a lot of fun here at the Hall of Fame, but we did it anyway. And we went through it and we're tough and we're going to get through it. But we were not able to have our induction ceremony. And I want to talk about that with you 
but um, we felt strongly that we wanted to continue our support and do some of our other things. So every year we give a land use award. Uh, we take a percentage of our partnerships and we award those to a land use organization. And um, in the past, we last year it was given to the Red Rock Four Wheelers, their multiple use defense fund. As you know, Red Rock um, Four Wheelers, they run um, Moab Easter Jeep and they have uh, a great multiple use defense fund where they go out and fix trails and make sure they're safe. Um, the year before, we gave it to the Friends of Oceano Dunes who are fighting the battle to keep the dunes open. Uh, in 2017, we gave it to Corva and the San Diego Off-Road Coalition. In 2016, we gave that award to Blue Ribbon. And then uh, this year uh, for 2020, we'll be presenting that at King of the Hammers to tread lightly. We'll be giving them our land use uh, donation and give them a big check. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Great. So let's go ahead and get started to 2010. When 2009. You, was it nine? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Nine. Nine. Okay, let's go back to that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Gee, see, see, I'm getting too old for this stuff. <laughs> and I didn't keep good notes and all the, most of the history that I had that was, it destroyed. So let's, uh, right. let's go, let's go into 2009 and talk about how it all came about to have a rock crawling event downtown or really close to downtown Reno. So I kind of melded two things when I got, when we moved to Reno and I got out of working in the actual industry in 1983, I started working at the Sands Hotel Casino in Reno and did advertising, marketing events. And we had a Reno Sparks special events committee that came up with things like the air races, balloon races, rib cook-off, chili cook-off, hot August nights. So we had this great series of citywide events, and the uh, concept was all of the casinos and the convention authority, we all had, and the city of Reno, we all had a, a stakeholder, and we would meet and we would cooperate to put on these great events, and the city would cooperate on the permit side, and the convention and visitors authority would throw their marketing dollars and, and promotion behind it, and all the casinos would put up prizes in rooms and, you know, um, it was a day of, it was a great day of cooperation. You could really see what happened when people work together. And there's a little lesson there for my wish for the off-road community too. <laughs> so we came up with all these great events. And then I was on a trail run in 2008. I was, uh, at the high lows poker run, one of the longest running, uh, events out here in the West on the Deer Valley trail. And I'm bouncing up the trail in the CJ6 with the T111 transfer case. So it's kind of like a four-wheel drive tractor. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we could do a rock crawl in Reno. And uh, I thought, wow, we could put rocks down Virginia Street under the Reno Arch. We could have southern rock bands playing in Harris Plaza. We could have rock light parades up the street. And then we could build a rock crawling course in uh, the Sands parking lot. And then we would do that through this Reno Spark Special Events Committee and it would start a new citywide event. 
And so I thought that would be great. So I pitched it to the owners, but the general manager at the time didn't want to share it. Lesson number one, he <laughs> didn't want, he didn't want to give it to anybody else or have anybody else help us. So he said, yeah, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it the way you wanted to do it. I want you to do it. And I don't want you to do it with any support from anybody else in the community or any of the other, you know. So he basically said, sure, you can do it. And then took away my toolkit. So I said, <laughs> okay, now what do I do? So uh, we uh, had worked with some fabulous people. And I have to tell you that working with um, like Bob and, and Stacy Frank from uh, over in Oroville and all the people, if anybody's listening to this that helped with Reno Rocks, you all know who you are. And so that was the name I came up with was Reno Rocks. Um, and again, I played around with a lot of names and um, that's the one that I settled on. And so we came and then I knew of We Rock. And so I approached you and I actually drove down to Placerville to see you and Rich in 2008, end of the year. Um, it was a tough time for you and your family, and um, you were very gracious to me despite all you were going through. And uh, we decided, yeah, we'll do it. And so then we had to come up to speed on how the heck do you do this. So we decided on uh, hay bales and shot creek. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Everybody else is laughing at your laugh too. But we did it. You know, and we partnered with Pirate 4x4. Mind you, this is before really you had social media. Facebook was kind of brand new, but nobody knew how to use it yet. So forums were still the thing. So we pushed it out through Pirate 4x4. And again, another innovation. Uh, you can't appreciate how hard it was back then looking at how it's still hard now. It's just they make it look easy to, to stream something. So we decided to stream it live. Camo and Lance were still at Pirate. I think it was Camo that told me he would do the event live if I gave him the penthouse and a life-size Captain Morgan statue. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay. <laughs> Luckily, I have a friend who has a liquor distributor. Thank you, Scary Gary. You know who you are. He came up with the I went over to his place, took a picture of the life-size Captain Morgan statue and said game on to uh, Lance and uh, Camel. And then we had some other great video partners and we streamed Reno Rocks live around the world. We uh, uh, had the, uh, the guys from Japan came over. Jeff Mello won with Dave Cole spotting for him. And it was Jeff Mello's 100th win. Dustin Webster was there. Shannon Campbell was there. And what I thought was great about Reno Rocks is it really embraced the lifestyle. You know, to that point, most events are kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Well, we had the infamous, <laughs> we had pool parties. We had uh, bikini contests. Um, after seeing what Camo was doing with those dollar bills, I immediately stopped sending my kids to school with ones for lunch money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. Um, you know, uh, we premiered the second King of the Hammers movie, uh, the second Crusade, 
Uh, I didn't know Jeff and Dave at that point, but I called them up and said, hey, we're doing this event and uh, I want to do your, you know, premiere your movie. And so we premiered the Second Crusade in the ballroom on four big screens and we had the bars across the hall. The biggest mistake I made was not enough bartenders. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm surprised we you guys had not- enough booze. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, I don't think we would have had enough booze if we'd had enough bartenders. We just couldn't push it out fast enough. (laughs) And then, of course, we all remember the uh, penthouse parties after the parties. Oh, wow. (laughs) Do we? (laughs) And uh, Kevin Carey, um, Lance Clifford, and uh, Camo taking over the stage with the live band and their impromptu version of Highway to Hell. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there were some great memories. There were some rough patches along the way. Um, You know, getting rid of all that stuff from Reno Rocks, the uh, trucking company broke the hay bales apart, you know, and they fluff up. Yes. And so they charged me by the truckload to get rid of that stuff. And they made sure it was as fluffy as possible. So, and then uh, we had the hydro barriers, the water barriers, which Mickey Thompson invented those. I have some great Mickey Thompson stories, too. Um, so when the event was over, somebody, well, after we got Dustin Webster off the course, because the insurance guy was hyperventilating, um, they were playing around afterwards. Anyway, somebody pulled the plugs on all of the hydro barriers all at the same time. And we basically flooded second street. It ran the, all the water went, you know, across out the parking lot and off the other side. So you know, when you put on an event, people think of the fun side, but, um, you know, it really boils. It's insurance companies fighting over who's going to be listed first. It's permits. Um, you know, it's trash, it's toilets. Um, you know, my success formula for a successful event is you can do anything if you have trash and toilets and boobs and beer. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what the event is after doing this for 40 plus years. So. But that's, uh, yeah, Reno Rocks was, I just thank everybody that participated. And, uh, but what happened was because we, because the general manager made that cornerstone decision to have us four wallet ourselves, we, we lost a significant amount of money on the event because there were no other partners and, and no other support. And while they were really delighted with the outcome and there was a lot of uh, positives um, about that time, uh, the effects of the um, oh the economic crash in like 2008, you know. Yep, the housing market. Of, yeah, the wave rolled over the sands, and uh, we had actually been purchased by um, the Herbst family. Their bank pulled their line of credit and said, "Nope, you're not going to be doing anything anywhere." And then uh, the sands actually went back to the banks that. That owned that owned it, so that kind of kind of put a stop to that. And uh, you know, it's funny you have a vision for something, and it doesn't turn out anything like your vision, but it still turns out pretty cool. And I think anybody that wants to do something like that has to look at that. And uh, things kind of have a life of their own. You know, if you, if you feel called to do something, you know, by goodness, go go give it a shot. It's better to try it and go down in flames than to wonder your whole life what if you know i have a little saying on my desk that says the little engine that coulda shoulda woulda you know 
Right. And, uh, you know, you don't get very far that way. So you got to be willing to get out there and uh, fight for what you believe in and support the things that you believe in and, um, and then get out of the way of the people whose dreams are different than yours. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So you mentioned, by the way, that, that event um, is probably the one event, and it's not just because of the rock crawl, but because of the show and shine and the pool party and the, the, the bar parties and the after, after, after parties and everything that, that was involved with that weekend was uh, makes it the one event that will always stand out in my memory as being the top. Thank you. Yeah. We all did it together. Again, it goes back to that thing about working together and everybody having a shared um, love for something. You know, you don't always agree. You don't always get your way. But in the end, when you're doing something because you love it and you have a passion for it, um, it'll turn out okay. I agree with you 100%. And one thing I can say is I'm sh- I was absolutely shocked that we didn't get closed down Saturday night by the SWAT teams or <laughs> local law enforcement somehow because that, that casino hotel was the, – the stories that everybody could tell from that night would fill volumes of books that nobody should ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I, you know, so here's a little behind the scenes thing. You know, we had, there's noise permits. You got to be done by 10. It's like, okay, we'll be done by 10. So you're trying to get a bunch of of these guys to stop being making noise by 10. And there was that apartment building uh, on Arlington that looked down a big, tall apartment building. And there was a guy in one of those apartments. Lots of people watched it from there. But there was a guy that lived there, and he didn't like the noise. And so he had my cell number. And at 10.01, he would call the cops, and then he would call me. And, uh, yeah, all the kind of fun things that you get to go through. But it's (laughs) worth it. Now it's worth it. Back then I was curled up in the fetal position, you know, just trying to. <laughs> Where's Barbara? She's behind the bleachers. She's <laughs> breathing into a paper bag. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, there's herding cats and then there's herding rock crawlers or off-roaders. And they are a whole different breed of cat, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, because it's basically a bunch of cats that are in heat. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I started with race car drivers and rodeo riders and truck drivers. So I, you know, off road to me, it's my family, and I and I love them all differently. Um, so uh, they're just, I don't know. Like we like we talked about, Reno Rocks was one for the record books. I'm sorry we didn't get to do it again. If anybody you know goes out there and looks around, there's videos on YouTube and lots of pictures online and thank heavens lots of pictures that aren't online yeah <laughs> hopefully a lot of uh a lot of photographs um the memory cards or or phones have been destroyed <laughs> right something about ripping uh sleeves off of shirts and arm wrestling competitions on overturned tables and hotel suites and and all the plants I- and furniture that were in those little <laughs> entry rooms <laughs> 
<laughs> that you'd step out of the elevator and there was always, you know, a right. table with uh, plants or something on it. And then like a couple of chairs or a couch, all of those like, got changed and disappeared. Oh my right. Lord. I think the well, funniest part of that was the bikers that were on the same floor as the rock crawlers. Yeah, they didn't know what to do with that. And any of you who are in the hospitality industry who are listening, we have mellowed considerably. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we Most have. Most can't even stay up till that 10 o'clock curfew. <laughs> oh, that's so true. That's so true. So let's, uh, good time. Yes, sure. absolutely. Let's, talk, let's, let's do talk about Mickey Thompson. Well... I got to know Mickey and Trudy uh, through, like I said, working. uh... So I was lucky enough to be on the road crew. I didn't work in the office, but I would fly out to cities a week in advance, and I would do the advance work and do things like um, set up the office in the stadium office and um, do promotion and make sure all of the boots on the ground thing were done. Like I mentioned, we had to find... You know, your list would say find cars for King Kong to crush, Um, find someone to sing the Canadian national anthem. That was fun because we had a Canadian driver. And mind you, you don't have a computer. You don't have a cell phone. You have a roll of quarters and a telephone. So I found someone who could sing, but nobody knew the words to O Canada or how to sing it. And you can't just go to YouTube or you can't go to Spotify or Pandora and listen to the Canadian National Anthem. So the only thing I could think of was calling the Canadian consulate to get the words and find somebody to sing it to me and have this guy who was going to sing it listen. But the person I was talking to was French-Canadian and their primary language was French, so their English was poor and my English isn't good on a good day. So I remember spending quite a bit of time trying to get the words to O Canada. And we pulled it off. I don't know how we did it, but we sang the Canadian National Anthem. (laughs) Um, But back to Mickey Thompson. Mickey Thompson was a dreamer. He was an innovator. He was kind of like that home run hitter. You know, he struck out a lot. And he had a lot of spectacular successes. Um, he was such an innovator. If you look back at the vehicles that he built, uh, Rory Ward, one of our board members, has the Challenger 4, the yellow one. And then even back to, you know, his son Danny Thompson in the, uh, the speed records. So here are people who are always innovating, always thinking. Um, we're lucky enough at the Hall of Fame, we just got donated to us uh, Mickey Thompson's course marking buggy. So when you would go out to mark courses, This is the little buggy he would take out to mark the courses. Um, It's not worth a lot as far as, you know, uh, value as far as itself as a vehicle, but the problem that's behind it that it's actually Mickey Thompson's vehicle and it's got, um, you know, his history behind it. Dick Landfield, one of the most amazing people ever in the sport of off-road that I could talk about for hours and hours, is one of our board members and he just donated it to us. Um, So Mickey was a great guy. Um, He innovated lots of things like the water barricades, um, which I think at some point got him in trouble with the construction concrete mafia people. I'm not sure. Matter of fact, I don't even want to speak about that because I don't know for sure. But regardless, he was always trying to innovate things. And so when we first started doing the events in the football stadiums 
and put the water barricades out, um, the racing wasn't very good because if you got the hole shot and you got the inside line, it was kind of a done deal. It was it. So he came up with this series of metal ramps. Now this is before this is before they. Um, I don't know why he tried to do it without putting dirt in the stadiums like we did for Supercross and like what they did at the Coliseum. You know, he did it in the in the Coliseum. He did it on dirt, but. Maybe he was trying to find a less expensive way to do it or a more efficient way. So he would just leave the stadium floor as the concrete and put the hydro barriers up. And then he thought, okay, I'm going to make a series of ramps and uh, of metal ramps. So if you have the inside line, you have the highest jump. So you're off the ground the longest and you lose traction and you slow down. And then there's a, there's a middle ramp um, that that's a little less high and then there's a lower ramp on the outside and then on the far outside it was just down to the the concrete so you could take the far outside line and not have to do a jump but you were on the outside and his goal was to make the racing more competitive and more interesting so he put these metal ramps on the floor and then the the drivers would try you know test them well the the ramps slid on the the asphalt or the concrete they wouldn't stay in place so then he had to rig a series of uh, uh, cables to hold the ramps down. I mean, I think he tied them to the hydro barriers or something. But anyway, then he had to test the new system with the ramps with the cables. And mind you, I'm hanging banners. I'm going to digress for a second. The suckiest job ever was being banner girl for, <laughs> for Supercross or um, Mickey Thompson Stadium Series because – you didn't just go out and get a banner banner, banner printed. They were freaking hand painted and they were expensive and everybody wanted their banner back. And it was also before kill seats. So the first thing people would do after the race is they'd pull the banners over the sides of souvenirs. And I'm trying to run around a football stadium, getting the banners back before the people steal them. So anyway, so I'm hanging banners around the stadium doing something. And I hear this, God awful squealing of tires. And I look up and here comes Mickey Thompson in a Lincoln town car running the course through the stadium to test those cables to see if they'll break. <laughs> Figured if the town car wouldn't break them, then for sure a buggy or a stadium truck, you know, one of the little Toyotas wouldn't break them. So Mickey is wheeling this town car through the stadium course and doing the jumps and sparks are flying. And I mean, everybody stopped and had their mouth open. I know I did. And it was just like, I think it's to this day, my favorite off-road moment until he was done and the, the ramps held and the happy ending, except the tailpipe on the town car was completely smashed. And then I looked at that car a little closer and I realized it was my rental car. <laughs> and so after the race, that's the car I had to take back. And boy, man, let me tell you, I dropped that thing off and I was out of there in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mickey and Trudy were always very generous to us. You know, one of the problems with passion is, uh, you know, it can uh, can be a great motivator, but it can also lead to hurt feelings and hard times and uh poor decisions. And, uh, so, you know, I don't, nobody really truly knows what happened with Mickey and Trudy. I just know that it was a terrible tragedy. And, um, for anybody that doesn't know, they were gunned down in their driveway in, in the eighties. And, uh, so that, that was a sad end to a 
remarkable chapter. And uh, I just know that they were always good to me. And uh, he really cared about the racers. Um, I remember him really caring about the people and, um, you know, putting on a good show. And like I said, that goes back to that deep respect for anybody who attempts to do anything on that scale. Um, You, Dave Cole, Jeff Knoll, Sal Fish, Roger Norman, all the people, whoever sticks their neck out there, to, to put something on so that the rest of us can experience it either as a competitor or a participant or a, or a spectator. Um, you know, there is no reason to do that from a financial standpoint, from a <laughs> sanity standpoint. And that truly goes back to special place in heaven that, that most of the time, unfortunately feels like hell. So, um, you know, much respect to all of you who, who do that. And thank you. You're you're welcome. And everybody else, all of us that do these kind of events and and like you say, risk it, um, we'll probably all end up in uh, bench racing somewhere up in the clouds, and then telling all of our own stories on what happened. And even though the players will be different and the situations might be a little different, you know, happening in, in Mexico or L.A. or Reno that uh, it will, there'll be a lot of things that uh, happened because of the people that we put ourselves around. And it's, uh, it's, but it's those people that why we do it. So, and you're one of those. Well, thank you. And everybody can participate. You know, if when I get stuck, I ask myself when, when I don't know what to do, I say, well, what can I do? And when I don't know, I say, well, what do I know? And, you know, one of the, one of my things that sticks out in my mind, and I'll tell you this, just these small acts of kindness and these small things that make a difference. I remember after um, a big race at Prairie City, were we at Prairie City? Anyway, a big ultra four race at Prairie City, I was walking through the pits and I was walking past Lauren Healy's pit and Lauren Healy himself is out picking up trash and it probably wasn't even trash from his team or his pit but he was cleaning up the area and picking up the trash himself personally to just because it's the right thing to do. You know, those small acts of kindness. Uh, when I'm on the trail, my husband gets kind of tired of it, I'm sure, but I'm always hopping out to pick up trash, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, take it back with me. Or in my kayak, I have a grabby thingy that I pick stuff up out of the water or, you know, don't, I don't want anybody to ever underestimate their ability to make a difference. You know, it might, they might not be interviewed by you or make, you know, be someone who's perceived as a leader in the industry, but everybody's a leader in the industry. You just have to do what you can do. What can I do and what do I know? And so, you know, say something, somebody's driving in the sagebrush, tell them about tread lightly and stay the trail. Um, If the gates open, leave it open. If the gates close, close the gate, you know, pick up the trash Um, we had a big discussion on human waste the other day online because people just didn't get that the Rubicon is made of granite and you put 500 rigs through there in a month with a thousand people and that stuff's not going anywhere. And, you know, you need to pack it all in and pack it all out. And, 
Um, if we want to continue to enjoy, to love the places we love and do the things we do, um, those of us who can do it need to do it and be good examples and try to do our best. Yeah, there's, you know, there's circumstances and times when, when things are different. But if if most of the people do the right thing most of the time, then we will really be able to be proud of, of ourselves and our community. True. So true. So let's let's now jump in with both feet into the off-road motorsports hall of fame. How about that? Yes. What an honor. Absolutely. So when did you uh when did you get started and tell us the history behind the organization? Sure. So the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame was started by uh, Ed Perlman, one of the early, early uh, innovators of off-road. Um, and he is Mike Perlman of Nora, dad, another guy, Mike Perlman, who I want to give a shout out as a, as a promoter. Um, Ed Perlman thought that any good organization or any healthy sport needed a Hall of Fame. And so he came up with the concept. And then he um, passed the baton to Rod Hall, who picked up literally one box of stuff uh, that was uh, Ed had passed away. And Rod picked that up and uh, brought it to Reno and had a dream of putting them together a Hall of Fame and establishing a museum. And Rod did an exceptional job with that. And uh, a lot of great people helped along the way. Um, his daughter, Shelby, uh, Bob Bauer was one of the early directors. And um, so uh, Mark McMillan is our current chairman. Uh, Mark is a remarkable human being on many levels. He's a successful business person. He's a philanthropist. He's a funny guy. If you ever get an invitation to one of his parties, he's generous. He's one of the most generous people I've ever met. He also happens to be a five-time Baja 1000 champion. Um, his dad, Corky McMillan, is in the Hall of Fame. And Mark is actually one of the two father and sons in the Hall of Fame. Um, Mark is the son. Corky is his dad. And then the other father and son set that we have in the Hall of Fame is... Um, Bob Gordon and then Robbie Gordon. So those are the two father and sons. Um, I started with the Hall of Fame in five years ago. Uh, apparently they were having a meeting in Reno and Shelby was ready to go off and do other things. And uh, they needed somebody to be the administrator. And uh, apparently the board was in this meeting and Dave Cole says, well, Barbara lives in Reno. Let's call her. And uh, most of them didn't know me, but of course I had known Dave from Reno Rocks and King of the Hammers and, um, and David actually called me previously and asked me to work for him in 2010 and asked me to come work for King of the Hammers and Hammer King. Um, and I said no, because again, I, I still had children that were in school and I felt like running off to join the circus <laughs> I had I had committed to saying I didn't have kids till I was older, and I said if I'm going to have them, I'm going to raise them, and um and I just didn't feel like I could run go off and join the circus. And I remember with you know nobody knows when I said no, nobody knows they asked, and nobody knows that I said no. And 
nobody was in the room when I had the big crocodile tears streaming down my face to have missed that opportunity. But again, there are, there are, um, the, the right thing will come along. And so there I was a few years later and got this call from Dave Cole and he says, Hey, I'm here with the hall of fame and uh, we want to interview you. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if I need a job and uh, when, and he said, well, right now, when can you get here? <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, I'll be right there. So I went to the auto museum and there was uh, this incredible group of, off-road heroes, Rod Hall and um, Dick Landfield and Dave Cole and Mark McMillan. And, you know, and we talked and, uh, and one of them even said, I don't think she has time to do this. And, but I said, you know what, I, I believe in this and um, I'd like to give it a chance. So I am a very part-time uh, executive administrator. We have a fabulous board of 15 incredibly successful, powerful off-road um, people in the industry who love this sport. How the Hall of Fame works is we generally have an annual induction and awards ceremony. Anyone can nominate someone for the Hall of Fame. The only guideline is that the person must have been involved in the sport for 15 years. April is nomination month, so people can go online and fill out the nomination form. And um, then we have a committee of industry people from all over, rock sports, advocates, racing, um, all sections. And um, it used to be easier to get in the Hall of Fame because we didn't promote it and nobody really knew. So we would maybe have 10 or 12 nominations. Um, last year we had 54. Wow. Um, our bylaws used to say we could have between three and five people inducted per year. We did a bylaw change to reflect that. So now we can have between three and seven inducted, but they still have to get votes from two thirds of the committee. You know, Hall of Fames are a narrow gate. Um, it's not everybody gets a trophy. Um, I just saw that the Baseball Hall of Fame will be inducting no one this year because no one got enough votes. So we're committed to, we have a process where we can have between three and seven. The committee meets, they discuss in person. Yeah, it's a very serious process. You know, we lock these people in a room for a day and then they do a blind vote and then they keep refining that as much as necessary and then they come up with um, the slate of proposed inductees for the year. And then that slate is reviewed and ratified by our um, board of directors. And um, I can tell you that at times it looks like sausage being made, you know, because of all of the fabulous people who are nominated. Everybody has a story to tell and they are amazing people. And just the way it works out, not everybody gets in, and sometimes that's hard. But you look at our class of 2020 that I want to recognize that uh, hopefully, hopefully, here's your inside scoop. If SEMA happens, we will be um, having our 2020 and 2021 combined induction ceremony on uh, the Saturday before SEMA, which would be October 30th. And we would be inducting uh, Bob Bauer and Dean Bullock, who we all know from uh, 
the Ice Band from Rock Crawling, Danny Fodrell, a fabricator, the great Jack Johnson motorcycle racer, Roger Mears, of course, the great Roger Mears, Cal Wells III, the man behind um, the Toyota program, and uh, a legacy inductee, Tom, Tom White, who did so much for our sport. So our class of 2020 will hopefully get inducted in Las Vegas before SEMA on October 30th, and we'll have the class of 2021 as well. So if anybody knows somebody that they'd like to nominate, don't hesitate to put in a packet. You can start now. We don't want a big, long story. Bullet points are better. We need to know why this person should be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Just a little short bio and why them and why this year. And uh, one of the things we've been looking at is when we induct seven people out of 54, to me, that doesn't decrease the um, contribution that those other people made. They just didn't quite get in. And so we're working on a program to build a registry to recognize everybody who's been involved in the sport and archive that at a major West Coast university in perpetuity. So anybody could um, document their history in the sport, and then that will be someone's job to caretake that forever. Um, I believe that the guy who's down at Mike's Sky Ranch in Baja at 2 o'clock in the morning holding a gas can for a motorcycle rider that never shows up, you know, everybody has a Hall of Fame story, and I believe everybody deserves to tell it. So we're working on that program. We also have a great series of awards for called our Impact Awards. That's where we look at the people who are doing great things now, the current generation, who's out there. Um, and then our voting members of the Hall of Fame, which anybody can be a voting member of the Hall of Fame. It's $25 a year. Um, you get to vote and decide who the people, the voters choice is. And so, for example, uh, we didn't get to do our 2020 awards because of, you know, Mr. COVID. But in 2019, uh, we had, uh, we have Desert was Andy McMillan, Short Course was Kyla Duke, Rock Sports was Lauren Healy, one of our favorites, uh, Moto ATV UTV was Phil Blurton, Industry actually um, was Dave Cole, Advocate was Amy Granite. And so we give those awards out every year and have people uh, for those. And then we do our land use donation. We have a never give up award. We have a volunteer award. So our our goal is the Hall of Fame is to be sure to tell the story of the people, places, events, businesses, and organizations who've been around and whose stories are worth telling and preserving. That's awesome. And if COVID this year does not screw up, SEMA, Shelly and I will definitely be at the award ceremony. We've enjoyed that over the last, oh, God, it's been eight years, I think, that we've participated in that. And it's been well, been really cool. It really has. It's an amazing event. And thankfully, the last two years, our amazing hostess, Charlene Bauer, has uh, streamed the cocktail party on Facebook Live. And uh, people can see what goes on there. We usually have about 600 people in attendance. We do a, a, a silent live auction and live auction that people can donate on, and bid on online. Um, you know, that's our major fundraiser for the year is our auction and the induction ceremony. 
And so to not have that last year, um, you know, we we have built the organization to a point with Mark's leadership and the board of directors and uh, my uh, tight purse strings that we are very financially <laughs> sound. But we have big plans and we need to be able to execute those. You know, the nonprofit world is kind of interesting. We're a nonprofit, but we're not a charity. And so it's very difficult. You know, people, you can rely on volunteers for some things, but let's face it, everybody's busy. And so we really need to be able to pay for the expertise that we need. For example, we have a hundred boxes of material that were donated to us by Judy Smith. The history of the, the sport is in those boxes, but we need someone who has archival experience and archivist, and it's a tedious job. So you need to pay someone to go through and catalog that material and to do the digitizing on it. And that costs a lot of money. And so we are looking to the people who love the sport and the industry and the enthusiasts and the business community to support the Hall of Fame so that we have the financial resources to do the jobs we need to do properly and not rely on volunteers. We have a program we're starting with heritage clubs and events we will be going out and recognizing any club or business that is part of the heritage of the sport. We're kind of looking at the Hall of Fame in two segments. We're looking at the first 50 years as our uh, first calling that Rod Hall left us and tasked us with documenting the history of the sport. And that requires a lot of uh, digitizing of photos, materials, programs, and, you know, digging into the history and making sure the, the the history of the sport is documented, but then looking ahead to the next 50 years and beyond and building a sustainable program where every year the history of the sport kind of writes itself through whatever processes we put in place. And then that's documented and archived at the university. And that just builds and builds and builds in perpetuity. Uh, you know, for example, what were the hot trends in, off-road this year, uh, you know, what what vehicles, what were the standout vehicles? And that would be participation across the board. We'll do surveys and, and um, you know, do stuff on social media and ask people, you know, what was the, what was your top headline in off-road this year? Was it electric vehicles? What, you know, what was the standout thing in 2021? Was 2020, was it, you know, Lucas Oil, um, you know, um, you know, the, the end of that great campaign. What, what, what things happened in the sport in any year that we all think we'll remember? And then you and I can't even remember what year we did something 10 years ago, 11 <laughs> years ago. Exactly. So, so we have this two prong approach to taking the past and making sure we get that uh, done. I have a pressing just feeling that we have got to get more interviews like you're doing with me with the greats of that first generation of our sport before they're gone, before they can't tell their story the way they want it told. So you should be talking to somebody 20 years older than me next week. Um, okay. <laughs> Seriously. Yep, um, right. That's what we got to do. We got to grab that stuff where we can get it. Uh, we want people when they're cleaning out their dad's garage in Long Beach and they come across a bunch of old pictures, don't throw them out, send them to the hall of fame. You know, make a donation so that we can make sure that they're preserved and archived and that your loved ones and your friends are always remembered. Uh, tribute pages on our, or we're starting a, a tribute, 
you know, section where you can uh, remember people. Because what I see with the Hall of Fame, too, is some people will nominate someone for the Hall of Fame. And they're an amazing person and a great human being and a great racer or recreation person. Um, are they a Hall of Famer? They are to me and to the family member, but they don't meet the parameters. But yet their story is still important and should be recognized and their contributions honored. So through these tribute pages, we'll be able to have pe- everyone uh, recognized and archived. We're kind of going to make Wikipedia meets the yellow pages, you know, where where everybody can tell their story. So That's other than that, I don't have any plans. That's great. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm right. glad to hear that. That's that. Yeah. That that's that's a goal and uh, right. a plan to happen. Yes, and the other thing we had happen last year that was quite a another thing that was quite a blow is we uh, our vehicle collection at Terribles in Jean, Nevada, was very popular and was building into quite a, a nice uh, attraction, and um, the the you know, the pandemic uh, closed the casino and it was closed for three months. And then they informed us that they weren't going to reopen it. So we had to dismantle our collection of vehicles, which was just one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Because again, you have a dream, you build something and then they have to take it apart and then be determined to rebuild it again. So we had all of the people who had their vehicles on loan come and pick their vehicles up. I'm very proud that all of the vehicles were safely returned to their owners that were owned by outside vehicles. Um, the Hall of Fame owns a few really cool vehicles, and uh, we had left those in the facility to try to figure out where to put them next. And um, in the meantime, they had a water leak and the ceiling collapsed on top of our Herman Bowie buggy. Oh, Jesus. And, uh, and so then, mind you, it's 116 degrees in Vegas in the summertime, and now you're in a casino that the ceiling has fallen down because the water pipe broke. So the floors are covered with water. It's no, there's no lights. It's 90 some degrees inside, and uh, we had to wait for them to shore the ceiling up so we could go get our other vehicles out, and then. Um, then they were able to determine it was safe and they were able to extricate the buggy. And um, so the buggy, thank you to Gary Holly, amazingly it was repaired and um, didn't sustain too much damage. It looked pretty disastrous, but um, it turned out okay. And none of the other vehicles were damaged, but we had to find homes for all of our vehicles. So we have the Walker Evans Parnelli Jones truck is at the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America in Daytona Speedway in Florida. We have Scoop Vessels Class 8 truck and the Snorton Norton Nova, which I adore. I adore them all. They are at the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles. Um, we were just gifted the gift of a lifetime. I literally cried. I cry a lot. Um, uh, Cameron Theriot donated us the BFG Bronco. We have not picked that vehicle up yet. We don't have a uh, we're, we don't have a new location. We have the Fusting Class Eight truck. Mark Fusting and his wife generously donated that vehicle to us. We have Rod Hall's Flag Hummer, which will be going into the National Automobile Museum in Reno. 
and we have um, Mickey Thompson's course marking buggy. And then the Herman Bowie buggy after it was restored is now on display at a Sands shop in Arizona. So all of the things you thought you'd be doing in 2020, you are basically doing your damnedest just to, you know, uh, kind of reel things in and um, make sure that the assets are taken care of and respected because people have entrusted us with this, uh, these pieces of off-road history. Um, and with that privilege of having these vehicles now, there becomes an additional responsibility to the Hall of Fame, which is expensive to maintain all of these vehicles. Uh, some of them run, some of them don't. Some The ones that do, we need to make sure that they're maintained properly. So that all costs money. And so, you know, we're looking to the business community and to individuals to help us support these vehicles and sponsor the vehicles and their care. And um, so we'll be looking ahead to that. We're looking for a new location in hopefully the Las Vegas area. And we will rebuild and we will be back because we heard loud and clear that that's an important part of the Hall of Fame. If people get a chance, they can go to our YouTube channel, Ormhoff's YouTube channel, and you can watch some of the uh, the videos that we shot at the museum. There's a great story of uh, inductee Larry Miner talking about the buoy buggy. There's a great video from the CJ5 of uh, Pat and Lauren Upton, who went around the world in the Guinness Book of World Records setting around the world in a CJ5. And there's a video there about that. So <clears throat> those are the types of things that the Hall of Fame believes are important. And we hope the other people who believe they're important will uh, support the Hall of Fame, either join, partner, donate. All the information's on the website at ormhoff.org. Well, I, I believe in the organization, and I hope that uh, all of our listeners do as well. I'd really like to see more rock sports involved and more of the the people that have made the history in rock sports or you know have have worked in off-road the rock crawling four-wheel drive end of off-road to give us our history um be active in it because the more that are active the more that the more the people that that were active and have made the history will be recognized in the Hall of Fame. And so we really hope, you know, that there's there's a bunch of us that, that want to see that side grow. And I'm hoping that we get all these young guys that are that are in the off-road four-wheel drive side of it involved with Ormhoff so that uh so the legacy in the in the rock sports, I mean, we're only 22, 23 years old with the rock sports in the competitive side, as opposed to the off-road racing with over 50 years of, of history that, you know, we can, we can build our side of the, of the sports history as well. So everybody that listens yeah. to this, get involved with Ormhoff somehow. Somehow. And, uh, like Rod Hall said, um, you know, it's not the off-road racing Hall of Fame. It's the off-road motorsports Hall of Fame. And he believed in that inclusivity. And, you know, for those of us that have been around the, the rock crawling rock sports side, it's kind of funny to, um, 
not funny, but it's it's interesting to watch the maturity of the sport, I guess, to the point that we're even talking about Hall of Famers. You know, uh, Shannon Campbell was the first rock sports person to be inducted in the Hall of Fame, and then we will be honoring uh, Dean Bullock uh, this year, hopefully. And uh, by the way, tickets will be available uh, if once we know we're going to be a go. Right now in Vegas, you can't even... Uh, have a group of more than 50 people. So uh, once we know where to go, the tickets are available. But one of the great things is it's open to anybody to come so they could come too. But rock sports, I'll never forget. I was sitting at a show and uh, I was across from Jesse Haynes in his booth and he was playing the old videotapes. What were the the early, the, 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 the CDs of the rock crawling events, like you rock and all of those. Holland and crawling. Yeah, Holland and Crown. So Jesse's got those Holland and Crown tapes on, and he's like um, voiceovering them. You know, he's talking about, oh, yeah, and that vehicle and this vehicle and that's tiny and John Nelson and this and that. And I thought, man, that's something we need to do is go back to those old, old, uh, old. <laughs> They're brand new compared to things in a timeline, but yes. we need to go back and capture all of that. And uh, like we say, everybody thinks we'll always remember, and we don't. So those are the types of things that a Hall of Fame, a a healthy and and uh, properly funded Hall of Fame, can have resources to do. And we hope to be doing a lot more of that. So. Well, I want to encourage everybody, all of our listeners, and anybody that's involved in in off road and rock crawling and four wheel drive, and overlanding and anything to do with getting off the pavement to get involved with Ormhoff, the off-road motorsports hall of fame. And even if it's just becoming a voting member, if it's buying some, you know, a hat or some stickers or whatever's available, you know, helping out somehow with the organization to, to capture that history because, um, in another 50 years, none of us are going to remember what happened yesterday. So, Barbara, I want to thank you so very much for coming on board and discussing your life and your history and how people can get involved with Ormhoff and the uh, the history of, of our motorsports off-road. And it's been absolute pleasure having you on today, but more than that, for having known you, even though it's a short period of time, it seems like it's been forever. And I just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you, Rich. And what you and Shelly do, as you know, we're, uh, we're friends and we're uh, comrades. And uh, you know that we are always there for you. Uh, David's always up on the hill with the CJ6, the winch ready to go. And I'll do anything you need to help make what you do successful. And we're looking ahead to a successful future for the Hall of Fame to uh, ask everyone to help contribute and do their part in whatever way they feel uh, makes a difference in their heart for the sport of off-road. 100%. Again, thank you. All right. My pleasure. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded.
Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.